The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways Podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today's episode is a recording of my conversation with Peter Bryant, chair and co-founder of the Development Partner Institute. As part of a live webinar hosted in partnership with the Catholic Peacebuilding Network and the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. We were joined today by ethicists and activists from all over the world to discuss policy and justice within the extractive industries. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this morning's webinar, and where we're going to continue conversations about extractive industries. I'm going to provide a bit of a an intro or setup, and then we're going to go into an interview with our colleague and friend Peter Bryant, who's joining us from I think California this morning, and we'll talk a little bit about industry perspectives on sustainability issues, human rights, and a variety of other issues relevant to the the work of the mining industry today, and ways in which the industry is trying to grapple with some of the new normative challenges they're facing in today's world. So I'm going to begin with a brief setup, and then we'll go to an introduction to Peter, and then we'll go into the, the conversation that we'll have for 30 minutes, and then we're going to invite you all to, to be thinking of some questions you might want to ask in the subsequent section. The mining oil and gas industries are rethinking their roles in the world today. Historically, they were often in the vanguard of colonial expansion or imperialist ambition, and able to operate at will with little regard for the needs or rights of peoples in the communities and regions around their mining sites. Today, however, the world is different. Films like Blood Diamonds have exposed the harm that can be done in areas where mining companies may have a presence. Today, companies are under pressure to be more transparent about their policies and their operations and their financing. Consumers are concerned about sustainability and climate change and human rights. Investors are evaluating companies today on the basis of new environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, standards. And companies have realized that they must rethink their business models and be prepared to speak to these issues publicly with evidence to support their claims. This has not been an easy transition for many companies. It's required a lot of reflection and consultation with a broad spectrum of stakeholders to determine a best response. Diverse fora have been created to foster industry-wide reflection. The Extractive Industries Transparency Review is one such forum that focuses on promoting transparency on a broad range of issues across the industry. Another is the International Council of Mining and Metals that serves as a think tank on policy and practice for the industry. Our discussion today will focus on what this emergent new normative reality may mean for companies and communities and how such fora are trying to advance these discussions inside C-suites and corporate boardrooms. Our guest today is Peter Bryant, one of the founders of the Development Partnership Initiative, a unique effort to reimagine the mining industry. Peter, a partner in Clario Consulting from Chicago, was engaged from the beginning in the creation of this initiative. The goal of the initiative is to imagine a mining industry that embraces sustainability and development principles and incorporates these principles into all aspects of their operations. Peter is an executive business strategist with more than 30 years of experience in driving high growth strategies for companies across Asia, Pacific, and Europe. 
He's advised executive teams on a range of emerging businesses to global Fortune 500 companies and held senior leadership roles at, at global companies. Peter's a serial entrepreneur, having been a CEO and president for two emerging technology companies and founder of a co-founder of an enterprise software services company. He's a leading authority on business sustainability and technology innovation in multiple sectors, including resources and energy, and as an active speaker around the world. Our discussion today will focus on the origins of the Development Partnership Initiative and why leaders in the mining industry thought it was important to step forward with an initiative of this sort at this time. Peter has accompanied this process from the beginning and while himself not working for a particular mining company, has been moving broadly across the sector for some time, speaking and representing the core values of the Development Partners Initiative to audiences and boardrooms across the world. I believe he can offer a quite unique perspective and a reasonably objective perspective on how industry is evolving both normatively and operationally. In the interest of full disclosure, I must reveal that I have been involved in the creation of the Development Partner Initiative since its inception and serve in a voluntary capacity on its advisory board. Peter, I'm delighted you could join us this morning for this conversation. And let's begin simply by talking a bit about the Development Partner Initiative. Can you give us a little bit of background on what DPI is and and what it might hope to achieve? Yeah, thanks, Ray. And I appreciate the invitation to be on your podcast. It's great to be here. So, yes, the Development Partner Institute, the Development Partner Initiative started just under 10 years ago when we convened, actually for the first time for the industry, a multi-stakeholder body in Brazil. And by multi-stakeholder, we had representatives not only from the mining industry and leadership, from indigenous people, NGOs like yourself, Ray, when you're at Oxfam, faith leaders, indigenous people, government. And many of the people in the room had been antagonists in prior, I guess, sessions where they had been, if they had been in rooms together. From that, we identified, and we were thinking about at that point, and this was when, from the Kellogg School of Management, was reimagining the mining industry for the future. And from that, this was really one of the principles, is we aligned around one thing, which was to transform the industry to a to more of a development partner. And so from that, a multi-stakeholder group was formed. And over three years, we co-created the development partner framework, which was a principles-based approach. So that was really the genesis of where it started. So I think critically for the audience is two things. One, the development partner framework is principles-based because I don't believe in being too prescriptive. And we can talk about that a little later. And two, it was multi-stakeholder created with no dominant voice in the room. So that was kind of the genesis of where we started. And what were the, I mean, if you were to maybe reflect back on that first session, that first stakeholder session, what were some of the things that were on the minds of the executives in the room that they felt made it necessary to be meeting in this way and talking about these issues? I mean, what were they feeling pressured by or what were they feeling that was needed to change, if I can put it that way? That's a great question, Ryan. I think, so I mean, there there were specific challenges, but I think, you know, the kind of overarching theme was that whilst the industry recognized it had to change and that efforts were underway, and I think, you know, I mean, mining industry is largely led by people with good intent, that they recognized whatever they were doing, the pace of activism, if you like, and demands from society was way outstripping the pace of change of the industry. And then underlying that, I think they felt, you know, there was kind of two things driving this as well. One was they were recognizing the increasing activism at the community and indigenous people level around a growing antagonism and anti-mining sentiment. And primarily because they were, whilst they saw a lot of the pain and negativity of resource development, they weren't seeing the benefits. And it's not just companies that are complicit in that. So that was the activism and also growing technological challenges as the resources they were mining were becoming extremely 
extremely more difficult to mine. So I think there was kind of those twin challenges that they were facing that has led them to And I would say that as we move forward to 2020, those challenges remain. And in fact, I think uh, actually have increased. I think the pace of change is greater than it ever has been. The challenges are bigger and the mining industry pace of change is still too slow. So. Maybe we could, you know, oftentimes I think audiences have very little sort of appreciation for sort of the technological complexity of this industry and sort of in some ways, uh, you know, the use of this massive machinery to move all this earth and yeah. deliver a kind of a value to a, a customer very far away and removed from these realities. One of the things that I was struck by in these conversations was a concern that the industry itself in response to these kinds of challenges had not invested at all in research to actually enable the industry to, to do a better job of more environmental stewardship, you know, and meet to some of the challenges that were being posed by activists and consumers. Can you say a little bit about what some of these technology challenges might be, just so people have a feeling for, you know, maybe the lag was in terms of the industry's ability to kind of do maybe a a cleaner and better job at the sort of thing it works at? Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, let's pick on one, a single resource, say copper. I mean, there's many technical challenges, but I think the primary ones is what they call the declining grade. So some of the major copper mines they have, for every ton of dirt they dig out of the ground, the amount of copper in that one ton of dirt is 0.3 of 1%, okay? So, I mean, if you're to pull out, you know, 1,000 tons of copper, that means you have to, you know, pull out a significant amount more dirt. So I think the scale of what you have to dig out of the ground to get to a resource, which, and copper is vital for electric cars, for example, is just enormous. And that grade is declining rapidly. So I think, how do you do all that? And then I think the two big things that drive that, because it it becomes uneconomic almost, and then the amount of energy and water that is needed to do that is off the charts. So technically they have to figure out how do I only extract the resource because the economics just don't work by those declining grades and how do I use significantly less energy and water to do that? Okay, because if you just did a linear growth of what I do today and just, you know, I have to dig 10 times more dirt out of the ground to get the same amount of copper as I do today, the dollar math doesn't work, the energy math doesn't work and nor does the water. So, I mean, I think if, in summary, that would be the big challenges. The whole industry faces that. Yeah. And so if we go back to your opener where you talked about the development partner initiative, I want to just sort of stay with the kind of that as a kind of one of these fora where these kinds of questions are being talked about. Can you focus a middle on sort of what some of the principles are that the development partner initiative is embracing and trying to kind of promote through the industry now as, as kind of its core business? Yeah, no, thanks, Ray. So I think the, the development partner framework has three pillars, as we call it. So the first pillar is shared purpose. And underneath that, there's a lot of principles. And, you know, we kind of have our own definition of that, but that's really having the mining industry and the mining companies, if you like, along with the other stakeholders, agree on what the purpose of a particular development is and understanding that and taking the time at the front, and this will take longer, to really develop that shared purpose. Because our belief is if you can't get to that, it's very difficult to develop a resource effectively. The second one is thriving ecosystems. That really gets into the environment and biodiversity so that you develop a mine in a way that during the life of the mine and during the development of the mine that you do minimal impact to the environment. And I have to say, you know, we do have to accept, as we do a lot of work on climate change and energy transition, is that human activity has a negative impact on the planet. You can't ignore that so what our job is to minimize that and not be destructive and certainly leave something behind that's as good as as we found it and the third one which i think is really critical for the communities and indigenous people is that we leave behind competitive communities 
organizations and countries. And that is demanding and asking mining companies to look beyond the life of mine and be a partner in helping developing economic and social resilience in the communities and countries off the back of the enormous wealth that mining projects develop for countries. And in some countries, I mean, it's a significant part of the GDP. And one last point, Ray, is I think, you know, underneath that, we fundamentally believe, and underneath that, there's sets of principles for each of those. It's really, really important to be principles-based because the more prescriptive either governments get, and I know we want to talk about regulation, is the more it boxes in all the stakeholders. Because even at a country, province, or regional level, everybody has a different view. Conditions on the ground are very different. And the more prescriptive we become, the more, I think, less flexibility we have on the ground. To, and when I say we, this is Indigenous people, communities, faith leaders, etc., we have to come up with something that makes sense for that region. So. Oh, that's very helpful. So, so how has this, you know, how has this approach been received by industry? I mean, this is not something that everybody was necessarily talking about. And, 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 and there are these global, you know, there are these big global conferences like in Daba and the, and PDAC in Canada, where you have 20,000 people from the industry. Is it possible to kind of penetrate these large venues where you've literally got the 16 or so major mining companies, and then you've got all of the other companies, the smaller juniors as well. I mean, how do, and, and all the suppliers that go along with that. Does, it, does this resonate or is this just sort of bounce off? Bounce off? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting, but not that we don't have time for it. No, no. So, uh, so a couple of things is, you know, so the DPI, we're very, you know, so we do, we work in three ways. So one is I call it kind of the activating role, which is we are very active in like in DABA and PDAC and all that, and the IFC conferences. So we're very active at key events, IMARC in Australia, you know, pushing and promoting the development partner approach. And then we have specific programs where we're working with industry and we can talk a little bit about those. And then thirdly, specific countries, we're working in Ecuador and Peru and we're starting work in Guinea where we're engaging on the ground with all these stakeholders. So I'd characterize that the theory of change is change happens one person at a time. So I think that over time, there is a growing realization that what we are saying, and we kind of look through things as a transformative innovator. So we do everything from an innovation perspective, a growing recognition that actually there is value in the approach that we're espousing and that it resonates. So I would say the language of development partner now, for example, is very much becoming part of the language of the mining industry. And we're seeing different mining companies starting to adopt the principles of that. So, you know, it's slow, you know, I mean, there's in technology industry, we have this thing called the adoption curve. So you start with visionaries, early adopters, then the early majority. And to be honest, I'd say where we are in that curve, then you get to the laggards, is we're still in the visionary early adopter phase which is a small cadre of companies that get this. So I, I think there's still a journey to be had. But at the same time, I think the challenges they're facing and the pressure they're facing, I think, will accelerate the kind of change that the industry needs to make. In the reception of this, have you enlisted some of the larger companies? I mean, among you know, if you're going to get it to a tipping point, probably having engaging some of the majors that dominate the industry yes. is probably critically important because they investor flow too. So could you say a little bit about... Who's asking you to do take on some of these ta- internal tasks of helping with transition and and yep. what kinds of things might they be interested in having you know having you look at? Yeah, so I think you know I mean on the supporter side you know obviously Anglo American and Mark Kudafani has been one of the true visionaries and have been a very strong supporter of integrated a lot of what we're talking about and what I think is quite a very progressive approach to economic development, community relations, et cetera. BHP, likewise, Rio Tinto engaging with. So I think we're seeing that kind of shift. 
So, and then you kind of have another cover of companies that are kind of have elements of this. So I don't think it's a zero sum game. So I think this, there's a spectrum of what people are doing. I think one of the hardest things though in this, and this is like any massive organizational change, is how you translate the kind of aspiration and vision of leaders into action you know, into the um, you know, at the asset level and in country. And that's about organizational change. It's about educating the mind managers and giving them the capabilities to be able to do the job that you are doing. And I, I think that's a big challenge for, the, for any company on any spectrum. And that's why I think collaboration becomes increased. I'm, I'm a big believer in we have to collaborate across all stakeholder groups, you know, sort of throwing stones at each other is not going to work. And it's because of this change. And I think we all want to see the same thing at the end. We may disagree with how to get there. So I think there needs to be much more of a collective effort to do that. And again, that takes certain talents as well, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard some CEOs express some some questions about how difficult it is or some reservations about how difficult it is to adopt the principles, but then drive them down through the, through the company to the, exactly. the frontline managers, which involves for them a major mindset shift in terms of how they yes. relate to all the people, if I can put it this way, outside the fence. In other words, yeah. a lot of this, I think a lot of what the, the development partnership initiative is, is trying to do is to get minds to think about not only their operations inside the fence, but also what are they doing outside the fence and what is Correct. their legacy contribution down the road? Exactly. I know you have some interaction also with mining ministers yes. on these issues in countries like Canada, as well, you know, obviously a OECD industrialized country, yeah. as well as many of the countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America where mining operations occur. What is your sense of where the mining ministers are in these kinds of questions? It's a really interesting question because I'm actually just a disclosure. So I sit on the and attend the Mine Ministers Summit, which the World Economic Forum and PDAC hosts. So every year we gather in Canada and we get about 30 to 35 ministers you know, from Africa, Latin America. We have different themes. And it's really interesting to me because there's some recurring themes. And two of those, are the governments are strug honestly struggling with how to deal with the activism at the community indigenous people level that's anti-mining. So you kind of have this dichotomy where the companies want to develop a resource, the government, central government wants to develop a resource for prosperity, but they're facing a lot of community pressure. And I have to be honest, I'm, I'm surprised they are actually flummoxed as to how to deal with that. And the second thing they seem to be, because these are recurring themes, is how you take the wealth coming from the mining and make sure that it flows, or not all of it, but that it flows back to these regions, to what your point earlier, Ray, to develop the economy and social services and health and the enabling infrastructure for those communities. And those two areas they're really struggling with, which is kind of interesting to me. So, yeah, but I mean, in some cases, in some cases, you can imagine that the companies, it might be in the country, company's interest actually to have be assured that that revenues derived from the mines are reinvested in communities by their governments. Yeah. Like, can you imagine, can you imagine, or do you know of companies that are actually thinking about, and you don't have to name them, but just indicate kind of what their activities might be is, are there yeah. companies that are actually thinking about whether they should be lobbying for those kinds of outcomes? Because there are decentralization initiatives underway in many countries where the money could in fact flow behind the, be behind the political structural change, if I can put it yeah. that way. Yeah, I, there are. There's a very small, I can count them on one hand, of companies that are doing this. And I think you raised an important point, Ray, because one of our provocations is to say to companies, 
it's no longer good enough to say I'm writing the checks and I'm providing transparency as to how much money I am providing the government and where it's going. We provoke that you have to become an active partner with the, with the government on how the money that you send in royalties and taxes is invested, both at a country, regional and local level, to meet the needs of the people. So and I think it's really important to be listening because when we say, let's build a school, that means different things to different people. And it means different things to Indigenous people in different regions. So first understand what the needs are and then be a partner in investing that because not, I, I think this thing, oh, the mine has you know, created 10,000 jobs and peripheral industries. I don't think that's the point because we get that. What we need to do is provide a pathway for these communities and regions to have vibrant economies that live beyond the life of the mine. And I think if I was the CEO of a mining company, that's what I would want to see when the mine's done. I can look at that area and say, look at the thriving community that we've left behind. And by the way, that takes a lot of work, right? And there's a balancing act that you don't want to come across as the smart colonial person telling governments what to do. So there's a real collaboration going on. And I think there's some efforts in different countries in Africa, uh, Latin America, from certain companies where I think there's good progress being made and governments are appreciative and companies are seeing the benefit of doing this. And by the way, this doesn't cost more money. That's a, This is the thing I think companies need to understand. This is not about just throwing more money at something. It's just acting in a different way. Yeah. So for companies, it may be that you're, the personnel you have now are not the right personnel for tomorrow, given yeah. this principle-based approach. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about what do the companies have to do differently and what policies would they have to adopt or strengthen and what operational investments might they have to make that they're not, you know, they weren't making before that to kind of put the right infrastructure and competencies in place to make this all work. Yeah. I think the, the capabilities are huge. I think and I don't know if this is the companies, I think the education system has to change, actually, to be honest, right? Because I think, you know, I think we need more well-rounded people, people that aren't, so it's not just about engineers, but engineers need to understand the sustainability issues, the community issues, and it just become, I mean, it's almost like you need to educate Swiss Army knives. So I think people need to be appreciative of all the elements we've just talked about, especially if you're a general manager at a mine site. I mean, obviously, you get specialists at a level below that. So I think there's a whole effort that needs to be done. How do you... But that's longer term. So how do I educate my workforce and give them the tools today? Because I'm not going to be able to re-educate everybody today. So how, do, how can I help them and support them? So I don't know if it's about, you know, I mean, specifically, obviously, they've got to invest in technology to change how water is used, how, what types of electricity and power is used. You know, we need to get off diesel. I think diesel is just not a good thing. So, you know, how do we get off that? So, I think there's no specific things. So, I think it's about building capability for the future, which is change the education system and today programs that support the people on the ground. So, so let's maybe explore a few particular areas. So, what about the whole issue of what you hear in companies today in terms of how they're thinking or talking about connecting with indigenous populations? Because as we know, many of these mines have now they're not necessarily mining exclusively in places where they're, they're remote regions where there's no populations present. Very often they're indigenous populations and there's all yep. sorts of negotiations. Are you seeing sort of a new kind of narrative in, about indigenous peoples or new approaches or new modalities that are being used in places that are, you know, we ought to know about that are kind of exciting and maybe mark a change? Yeah, I think there's progress being made, but I think this is an area that needs tremendous change personally. Because I think, and I'm originally from New Zealand, and we New Zealanders like to think we have a, even us white people, you know, have a strong connection with our Maori culture, etc. So I think we're kind of a, more attuned to it, maybe than other Western countries. But 
I think we are not engaging with indigenous communities in a way we should. I think there's a lot, been a lot of progress made. You know, Canada's a good example, but there's a long way to go, to be honest. You know, and I think FPIC is a good example. So Matthew Kuhn Kum, who is the just retired Grand Chief of the Cree Nation, fantastic, has just joined our board. And he said actually something very profound at an event we were at. He said, indigenous people don't want consultation, they want participation. And we find consultation actually insulting. I think that's a very powerful statement because, you know, we talk about FPIC a lot. So I think there's a transition there. And when you unpick what he means by participation, I think certain countries, you know, they, they want more than just to be consulted. They want to be involved. They want to participate in the project in ways that are meaningful to their community. So I, I think it's just a long way to go, right? I really do. I think this is kind of a huge, and I think it's a huge era of opportunity. So yes, progress. I think mining companies are going, yep, I get your town hall meetings, etc. Yeah, it's just not working. So we, we need to change how we communicate and we need to be more open to you know, the input from communities and I always say, you, you need to go to communities now with a blank sheet of paper and say, I just want to develop this resource. How are we going to do it together versus here's what we're going to do. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you're probably familiar with some of the work in Canada where we, there are now equity partnerships around some large yes. mines in northern yep. Canada for the first yep. time, which is a rather interesting way to think about participation. Yes. Another aspect of this is this whole FPIC concept. And what is your sense of how far that's been accepted or or not by the industry, the idea that you know, free prior informed consent that is some companies are writing it into their policies and other yes. and, and actually engaging in active stakeholder, multi-stakeholder consultation with indigenous and other yeah. communities. And some have walked away from properties that they might have other, where they've done a lot of yeah. initial exploration. What's your sense? Of, is that becoming mainstream now or is that uh, still, is there still a lot of resistance? No, I think that's become mainstream because I'm, I'm, I'm sure if I'm making the statement, I'm, I may not be correct, but I think I am, is that ICMM mandates FPIC, I think, if you become a member of ICMM. I think you have uh-huh. to adopt that. I think it's always in the implementation, right? I think we still see, even when you do that, I think we're seeing a range of implementation of FPIC on the ground. I think most companies are committed to it, but I was listening to an Indigenous leader from Canada actually <laughs> talking about FPIC, and he said FPIC is just merely a little, little tiny part of the different, he named, and happy to share the detail, but several or eight things from the UN Declaration of Rights for Indigenous People. He said FPIC's just the beginning. He said these other six or seven things that are in, embedded in that are going to become significant for Indigenous people and you need to be ready. So FPIC, if you like, is kind of the, the early scout for this. So there's more, I think that's the challenge for the industry. They're just kind of digesting FPIC and I think what indigenous people are going to start doing is say, okay, that's great, but now here are all these other things that we need to start seeing. So I think the bar is just going to be raised consistently on companies. So I think it's going to be a challenge. So, I wonder if you, could, you know, we're running close to the half hour, but I want to, I want to sure. maybe see if you could maybe comment on a few things that are kind of big issues that are oftentimes, well, that are, I think, the top of the sustainability agenda, if I can put it that way. One is climate. In other words, yes. you, know, you know, you mentioned earlier the heavy energy use and increasing energy use because of low-grade ore. I wonder if you could say something about how the, how the industry is looking at that. A second might yeah. be water and water extraction and water scarcity. And companies are often in water-scarce areas already. So, you know, there's potential for creating real, you know, real challenges for yeah. communities. And then closure and dam collapse. Those maybe those four sort of areas. If you just want to do some quick hits on, on what you think or see going on in those in those three or four areas, and, okay. and then maybe we can switch gears. 
No, fine. Thanks, Ray. I've been four tiny areas, right? So actually, I just want to say, I mean, DPI, we just started a joint program with the Rockefeller Foundation, and it is relevant to all of these four things, actually. Program with them called Responsible Sourcing from Mind to Consumer. And we recently convened with the Rockefeller Foundation at the Bellagio Center, which, Ray, you've been to as a scholar there. But we brought together organizations from consumer-facing brands like BMW and Tiffany through to the people that are fabricating in the middle, like ArcelorMittal and ATI, Two mining companies, we had big investment groups like Goldman Sachs, Citibank, indigenous people, and civil society. So it was really, really interesting. So I came to, uh, from that, I fund, from that, and there's some work programs starting. So first thing, and then we're going to teach you, because each of these areas was tackled, is I think what will drive the industry to fundamentally change will not be the industry itself, but I think pressure from two constituents, and that is the consumer-facing brands, like BMW and investment, both equity and debt. And those two things, and that, and we saw that there, that they're going to put pressure on the supply chain to say, we need things to be done in a certain way. And I think that's the tipping point for the industry. So in climate change, I think the industry really gets that, you know, A, its own direct contribution to emissions and its contribution through the supply chain that it has to minimize it. So, you know, BHP's just done a significant announcement around that, I think by net zero by 2050. I think Anglo, I think most of the major mining companies are recognizing this. I think the pressure from investor and consumers is only going to increase. And I think the key thing people need to understand in all these areas, there is a financial incentive for companies to do this. They will reduce risk, reduce cost, and become more profitable as a result. So, you know, I'm kind of a believer that, you know, this is not a either or. I either make financial returns and I don't do anything on this, or I do all these things and I make less money. I think they go together. You use less energy, cleaner energy, you spend less money. Same with water. I think water, and there's a lot of innovation going on now, Raina, but I think there needs to be more done to accelerate this on how to use less water and processing, et cetera, because... You know, we see Chile, you know, restricting the use of water, you know, significantly. So there's a lot of problems there. So I think they're serious about that, again, because there's economic incentive to do it. And I don't think, you know, I mean, we can get moralistic, I think, and say, if they're doing that for economic incentive, that's bad. But I don't think so. I don't think it matters the incentive as to why they're making changes. I think dam collapses are awful. I am still stunned that the industry just hasn't come out and said, and you may not know the answer, it's a bit like Apple saying, you know, at some point, we're not going to do mining or oil and gas with some of their initiatives. Is they should just come out and say, we're going to get rid of tailing dams. We don't know how, and we're going to invest and make it happen. I just don't see how tailing dams are going to be part of the future. So there are companies working on this, but I think there needs to be a much broader industry coalition and more investment made on how to move towards dry tailings and how do you mitigate the risk from existing dams. And lastly, closure. Yeah, I think that that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because a lot of your know, mining companies sell their mines before closure <laughs> and then there's no then the countries doesn't have the resources to do that but i think when you and this gets back to shared purpose you need to agree what the use of the mine and what the mine's going to look like when you go when you develop it and i think if you can't get that agreement with the communities and the government then you shouldn't really proceed with the development so that was a very quick snapshot. Oh, no, that was great. Areas. That was yeah. great. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, it That's was great. recently I was in Chile and I saw in the northern areas of Chile where there were quite a number of mines, actually yeah. uh, BHP had put in this uh, several, I think three to $5 billion water salinization, desalinization yes. plan to basically provide all the water in a closed system for their yes. mine, which is about 150 miles away. And it's yep. quite, it was quite a significant investment on their part. And then they're transferring the land title, the water rights 
titles they have to the indigenous <clears throat> communities in the region, which yep. I think is also kind of interesting, so that the they will inherit what they should have had in the first place, which is a much more substantial claim on water in their region. Um, yeah, I think, BHP yeah. finances its own water use. And then some of that is all the energy for that is because you have lots of open land in those northern desert yep. areas of Chile, you can put in solar you know, you can put solar energy yeah. generation in as well. So um, the combination yep. makes for an interesting potential sustainability outcome. Thanks so much for making time this morning and for these rich and thoughtful reflections. And perhaps sure. I suppose it may be more importantly, many thanks to you for your leadership within the industry and trying to foster uh, this principle-based approach and new vision. And I guess right. I'd say new mindset among the yeah. industry executives and government ministers. And I think for us, I think your insider perspective of the C-suite gives us a new perspective on the challenges that conscientious leaders are going, to, are going to have to face in trying to drive these values down deeper into the companies. Again, this episode was a recording of my conversation with Peter Bryant, chair and co-founder of the Development Partner Institute, as part of a live webinar hosted in partnership with the Catholic Peacebuilding Network, and the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Visit dpmining.org for more information, or follow Peter on Twitter, where his handle is at Peter J. Bryant. You can find more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast online at pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, or stream and subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Podbeam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways Podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways Podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.